And if you've got a Bible on you this morning, why don't you grab it? Uh, if not, I'm going to read to you in, in a little moment. We're reading this morning from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. This is the parable of the tenants, and this is God's word. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out to the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So this morning we're digging back into the series that we were with before jumping into the Christmas series and various reflective bits uh, over the last couple of weeks. And so that means jumping back into the question this morning, what is the kingdom of heaven like? We asked it for about 10 weeks prior to Christmas and we're asking you again, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Scandalously full of grace, scandalously wildly adventurous, the kingdom with a king that's Jesus, the kingdom with a realm that's here and now and yet all of what we see and know, the very best of what following Jesus and experiencing him in this life, healing, hope, fullness, joy, love and on and on and on and on and on are just a foretaste of what one day we will know. The kingdom of heaven told in stories called parables. And I wonder if you've ever had the experience of watching a film that has moved you so much that you have both laughed and cried nearly at the same time. I've known several of those in my life. Maybe you can think of some right now. Films I loved when I watched them. Films I talk about now. For example, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Life is Beautiful. It's an Italian film uh, about an Italian Jewish waiter called Guido set in World War II time. He finds love with Dora. Eventually they have a son. The family is torn apart. His father and son are taken away to a concentration camp. And they get through the experience of that concentration camp as the father convinces the son that the whole thing is a game. And it's a beautiful film. It, it, it deals with such an incredibly delicate issue as the Holocaust and concentration camps in such a wonderfully, uh, wonderfully tactful and clever way. It's full of properly slapstick comedy. It's genuinely funny. And yet, if I'm really honest, I always leave it with the feeling that what I'd really just watched was a tragedy. And more recently, Joy and I watched the film Jojo Rabbit. 
It's another film about Nazi Germany, and, and it's a wicked, funny, brilliantly acted film, right? And it's billed as a comedy, or at least that's what the trailer will tell you that it is. And yet when it was over, all I felt was tragedy. And I say that today because in many ways, when I read this parable, I feel exactly the same. On one level, it's a parable that resolves itself, right? Some of them don't, but this one does. Wicked tenants are eventually thrown out and dealt with, with justice, and the parable ends with rightful tenants in place. As it says itself, the Lord has done this, and it is a marvelous thing in our eyes, right? One of the big parable commentators, Craig Blomberg, identifies that it would be considered a comic because it has a happy ending. And yet, does it leave you with the fuzzy feeling of a Hollywood happy ending at the end. No, of course it doesn't. It feels like a tragedy, doesn't it? And on the face of it, this is a parable taking aim at the failed and failing leadership of God's people at the time. And in a week of news and decisions about AQE, A-levels, GCSEs, stay-at-home announcements, Stormont and Capital, buildings. It feels like a fairly resonant time to be talking about field leadership. See, this is a parable depicting what happens when leadership goes wrong and where it leads in the end. But ultimately, as we read it today, Jesus aims squarely at the chief priests and elders, right? That's what it says in verse 23 and then again in verse 45. But it was the crowd that was listening then and it's the crowd that listens today. Those given all authority to go and make disciples, to love God and love our neighbor, to inherit the kingdom and seek its coming on earth as it is in heaven. Leaders, every one of us. He's talking to us today. So what does the parable of the tenants have to speak to the kingdom and our understanding of it today? It's speaking about God as people and judgment. It's a parable that's a picture of patience, us and rejection. The first picture is patience. Let's just read those first few verses again from verse 33 to 39. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What is going on here? Well, on the face of it, the situation uh, that Jesus describes here is one that most scholars who study this period of history agree would have been fairly common. Landowners commonly owned land and then lived abroad and rented out that land to other tenants. This would have been a common thing. And it was common that those landowners expected payment in terms of the fruit from the harvest. After all, in order to maintain their claim on the land, it's important that they were paid in some way, right? In the ancient culture, of that time in an even greater way than it is now when they say possession is nine-tenths of the law. It was even more than that then. Often when disputes arose about landowners and titles and all of that sort of stuff, it was settled in favor of those who were in possession of the land. 
And in the story, as you read it today, it's, it's pretty straightforward to interpret the various characters, right? The vineyard owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders of the nation. The series of servants are the prophets that God had sent through the years. And the son is Jesus. It all seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? And to the listener of the day, however, they didn't just read those figures the way maybe we read them now. They would have recognized right away that all the talk about a vineyard was paralleling with the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5, and everyone would have known it. And in Isaiah 5, Isaiah writes a poem, or rather he turns out a love song in his words, about God lovingly and properly planting Israel like a vineyard, watching over it, doing all he could, hoping that one day he would find good grapes. But in the end, as the ASV translates, all he gets is wild grapes. And as Jesus starts to speak, they would have recognized what he was talking about was, was like Isaiah 5, and yet he's telling it a little bit differently this time. God is still the vineyard owner. Israel is still the vineyard. But Jesus has started to weave through the story in the servants, the idea that through the prophets, God had been speaking, tending, longing for the time when Israel would at last become the people that he wanted them to be. Good grapes not wild grapes. And Jesus is beginning to reinterpret the story around himself. See, the tenants were entrusted to be tenants in the first place. And we need to see that that's a big deal. I mean, have you ever owned something, something that was precious to you? Maybe it was a book or an item or whatever, right? You'd looked after it, you'd owned it for years, and it was in perfect condition. And then you lent it to somebody else, right? It was perfect when you handed it to them, and about a week later when you see them with it, they've already wrecked it, right? It guts you, doesn't it? And just look at how the landowner had cared for and tended to the land that he gave the tenants. Verse 33, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, he dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. It was a privilege to gain the vineyard, to be entrusted with it. And yet, again and again and again, when the master comes to ask for his return, the tenants reject him again and again and again. The thing is that they were rejecting not just that which they were entrusted with, but the one who had given it to them. The picture of God here is one of patience. And here's the thing, like the vineyard, so too is the care given to the lives that we are gifted with. The gifts we are given, the people, relationships, kids, resources, opportunities that we have, the authority that we carry, the kingdom that we inherited, we are entrusted the same. And yet, what do we do with it? What do we have to show for it? What do we do with a patience like this? So we're back in lockdown, as no doubt you already know. And as we entered lockdown, I spent actually a little bit of time thinking about the previous lockdown that we had been in, where I was at at that period of time, where we were at as a family, what was going on, how we were working day to day, what rhythms were working for us, all of that sort of stuff. And as I thought about it, actually, one of the things that I thought about that I wasn't particularly proud of was how I had parented Elle. 
I mean, it's a small space to be cooped up with, with kids every day. At that time, you're only allowed out to exercise once a day. And if you live with a four-year-old with as much energy as she has, that's pretty full on, right? Parents, can I please get an amen wherever you are this morning? And so she'd inevitably be fed up being stuck in the house with us borathons. She'd start wrecking the place. She'd start doing stuff she shouldn't have been doing. And just generally being a four-year-old stuck inside day after day after day. And eventually... I found that my default setting was just to crack up at her. Patience was definitely not my first reaction. And yet every so often, right, I, it would be like I would have this out-of-body experience, right, like this zoomed-out view where I would just take myself out of the picture and all of a sudden I would see her, whatever she was doing, small play with figures, riding on her bike, running about the square, picking flowers, whatever it was. And I really see her again, like really see her. And she's beautiful. She's caring. She's joyful. She's wildly adventurous, full of expectation for life, full of affection. And it would break me. It would humble me. I'd find myself apologizing to her for the state of the parenting that I was giving her. And I would find myself acting out of a little bit more patience for about 25 seconds or so before I would crack up at her again. But a patience like this, like that of the landowner, to send servants again and again and again and again and again, no matter how badly they were treated, beaten, stoned, killed, no matter what happened to them, to send them over and over again, to get rejected again, until eventually he sends his son and they kill him. They kill him. You know, when I think of patience, I can't help but realize the chasm between what we would do and what he does. Why? Because at his heart, patience is at the center of who he is. How do I know this? Because the most quoted passage of the Bible by the Bible is Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. It's quoted more than 27 times throughout the Bible. And what does it say? Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Slow to anger, abounding in love. You know the incredible thing about those 27 times that this is quoted? The incredible thing is this. It's that most of those are by people returning to the Lord and trusting his forgiveness. He is patient. This is who he is. Today, we so easily jump straight to the judgment at the end, don't we? Whether we like it or not, we tend to say that we live in a more forgiving world, a more accepting world, a place of equality and all of that sort of stuff. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we probably live in as judgmental a time as there has ever been. We can't help ourselves but jump to the idea of judgment at the end and judge it ourselves, can we? But in its time, the listeners who stood there that day listened to Jesus talk about the events that unfolded in the parable. It wasn't the judgment that they jumped to. 
they were astonished at the patience. And so he still is today. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't jump to the judgment. As you look at your life, as you look at maybe the state of yourself or the things you've done or your history or maybe what your life looks like right now, don't jump to the judgment. Jesus doesn't because God doesn't. This is who he is. As we look at the kingdom today, I want you to see, to know, first of all, that he is patient with you. This is a picture of patience. But secondly, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of us. Verse 37 to 39. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. You know, when you look back from this passage to the start of chapter one that we're reading from today in Matthew's gospel, the context, first of all, is Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem, and then he famously uh, overturns the tables and uh, clears out the temple just after that. And then right after that, there's this whole episode and conversation about Jesus' authority. In fact, in Mark's gospel, where this parable arrives in Mark chapter 12, uh, the authority conversation is one that Jesus is having all the time with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he demonstrates it again and again and again. The Lord of the Sabbath, uh, the one who forgives, the one who heals, the one who has authority over demons. It's one of the mega themes of the whole gospel of Mark. Authority. You see, the problem is not with the whole vineyard. The, the vineyard owner does not return and just scrap the lot, knock down the tar, just, just, just totally take apart the, the wine press, plow through the fields. He doesn't do away with the vineyard. It's just the tenants that are their problem and their lack of fruit and their complete rejection of the one who owns the land. And it's most obvious in how they, teach the, how they, how they treat the sun, isn't it? Why? Well, on one level, one commentator remarks that in a world where ownership is dominated by possession, the tenants may honestly have believed that as the son arrived, he was there because the landowner, the father, had died. And so they thought that if they could kill him, they would rightfully gain the title to the property, right? So that all makes it legit, doesn't it? Absolutely not. But they could, you could understand that particular approach to what they did that day. But you see, there's this fascinating thing as you read the Gospels. And it's this, it's that as it becomes clearer and clearer that Jesus really is all that he says he is, his authority and the reality that he really is the Messiah, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, healing after healing, that it's easy to see that Jesus really is all that he, sees he, all that he says he is. The strange thing is that the opposition grows greater at the same time. As you see Jesus more clearly for who he is, for the wonder that he is, for the love that he is, for the authority that he carries, that the opposition grows greater at the same time. Why do I say that today? I say that because the issue with the vineyard tenants here is that they overreach. They overstretch. They stretch beyond themselves. They realize that when it comes to the land that they're in in this moment, it's either him or it's them. Only one of them will inherit. So who's it going to be? 
Is it going to be the son? Or is it going to be me? Either the son will inherit it all, or they will. You see, this story adds to the story of, of Jesus that's unfolding right here uh, as the previous conversation had just been about his authority. And as N.T. Wright says, faced with someone behaving with an authority which has the word royal stamped all over it, the authorities must either submit or do away with them. So what do they do? In the end, they do away with them. See, the problem in the parable is really a lack of loyalty to the landowner who had entrusted them with the land. And the problem for religious leaders at the time was a lack of loyalty to the king who announces the kingdom, the king who was right in front of them, the religious leaders, the very ones whom Jesus was debating with, were the ones who should have seen who it was right there then. And our problem is the same now too, isn't it? The truth is, so often in our lives, we overreach. So often stuff comes at us, decisions are to be made, things in our life. And we ask ourselves, it's either him or it's me. And so often we make the choice for me. So often we want to follow Jesus, just not when it costs us or when it hurts or when we don't understand or when the world isn't all as we thought that it was going to be or when it requires us to change. Goodness knows we push back when we need to change. Or when it forces us to have less and give more and love better. Or when it forces us out of step with the world around us. So we reject it. We overreach. We decide that it's him or us and we choose us. You know, another way that we reject that is rejection all the same is just to hold back. Holding back is just the same as rejection. We hold back parts of ourselves. We hold back our resources. We hold back our best laid plans. Holding back is still rejection. Don't believe me? Just ask somebody you love. It's loyalty. And here's the thing. Jesus wants it all. I sat and listened a number of weeks ago as my dad preached at his last, minute, his last uh, service as minister at Carmoney Church, which is the parent church that this place uh, was planted from. He's been a minister, uh, an ordained minister for over 40 years. He's been there at Carmoney for, I think, 19. And still trying, still hoping, still chasing that he might finish well, that he might do all he can do so that God might do what only he could do. And reflecting on what has been a hugely fruitful ministry and an absolutely incredible church, though I know that he would never take the credit for saying it's been a fruitful ministry. I listened as he said these words. Looking back, all the mistakes were mine. All the glory was his. And that's it, isn't it? I want that sort of loyalty to be the mark of my life, that I own the mistakes, but the glory is not mine, it's his. That the loyalty of my life to Jesus and his way in my life and in this world requires it all and it can have it all. So often, you know, it's easy to live our lives the other way around, isn't it? Like every glory is down to us and every issue, pain and mystery is his fault. And if we're not careful, the longing of our lives becomes our glory and the blame of our lives becomes his. This was a question of loyalty. Loyalty to the one who has entrusted us with so very much. And after all the patience with us, what are we going to do with the son? 
as he comes to us today, as we told the Christmas story again and again and again, that God is with us. What are we going to do about Jesus? And how are we living with what we've been gifted to steward? This parable is a picture of patience. This parable is a picture of us. And finally, this parable is a picture of rejection. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Rejection sucks doesn't it? It's hard. It's rough. You have that, so what's really going on here conversation with that boy or girl that you've been spending lots of time with. You think there's a relationship developing. You have um, that, as I've heard it called before, DTR, define this relationship conversation with the person. And it turns out that really they just think that we're going to be great friends. And you feel it. Or the job interview that doesn't go your way. Or maybe a situation in your family right now. Rejection sucks. Just this last week, Elle was playing in the house. She was doing water play and she started to kind of get a bit rowdy. It was getting a bit out of control. There was water going everywhere. So I went in to try and and calm it down and and move her on to do something else. And she was fuming at me, right? She didn't want to stop. I was like emptying the sink. She kept putting the plunger in. I kept you know putting the plunger up. She was fuming about it, right? And in her rage at one point, she turns around and says, I don't want you. You're not my dad. And it cut, right? Like it got me right in the heart. I mean, I wasn't about to start explaining to my four-year-old daughter how there was truly nothing that she could do about me being her dad. That was very much about something I had done, right? I wasn't about to start having that conversation with her right then, but it cut, right? It got me. And one of the great themes of this passage is rejection. And first it plays out with the servants that the landowner sends, one after another. The first group, there's three. The second group, it says there's even more than that. Rejected, beaten, bloodied, and killed. In much the same way that Israel had treated God's prophets. And so he sends the son. And the thing is, when he sends the son, this is on a whole other level, right? In the household of the time, there were servants in the house, but then there was the son, and they are not in any way at the same level. This is on a whole other level, the same as Jesus was to the prophets. It's God's only son. It's all he had, and yet he sends them. And soon Israel would do to him as the tenants did to this son. First they throw him out of his own vineyard, and then they kill him. And on rejection, the commentator Michael Green Notes this, in brief, they appropriated his goods, they rejected his prophets, they denied his rightful claims on them, and they killed his son. And in killing the son, this son, Jesus, the rejection was complete. This was a chosen people. This was the apple of God's eye. And this was how they responded. And this little section of verse 42, right? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes, right? That's, that's actually a direct quote from Psalm 118. 
And Psalm 118 was actually the same psalm that they had been singing just a few days before at Jesus' triumphant arrival into Jerusalem. The song that they used to celebrate him was now the thing that rounded up how they had rejected him. And the interesting thing about that is that the psalm, in that psalm itself, the stone the builders rejected was actually referring to Israel as distinct from all the other nations. But now it was Israel doing the rejecting. N.T. Wright says this, he will be rejected by builders who have their own interests in mind. In this case, the chief priests and scribes determined to hold on to power and prestige. You see, the son was here. Jesus is here to claim what was rightfully his. And yet, he was rejected because they had other interests in mind. Sound familiar? That Jesus might come to claim What is his? What is all his? The kingdom we inherit is his. And we have other things in mind. See, here's the thing. It's all about this son. Even in the original language, right? The word for son in verse 38 and the word for stone in verse 42, ben and aben, right? They're a word play. They mean the same thing. The stone is the son. The son is the stone. And the rejection that really matters is the one against Jesus because he is the greatest gift. Primarily, it's not about rejecting a way of life or a teaching or his gifts or a call. It's about receiving and knowing, accepting that he he is not a means to an end, that joy or goodness or generosity or purpose or forgiveness or any of those other things. He is not the means to an end. He is the end itself. It's about him, the stone is the son. And the thing is that when we reject him, it's serious business. So after this parable was told, God did remove and reject the religious leaders of the nation, as he did the tenants in the parable. When Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, the leaders were carted off in AD 70 by the Romans. The passage talks about judgment. And the rejection goes the other way, doesn't it? But it's not aimed at pagans, non-believers, people outside the church, the sorts of people that we tend to think about when words like judgment get ruled out or get ruled out, right? It's not aimed at those people out there, outside of God's people. Jesus is aiming it at the leaders, the ones who should know better. He's aiming it at us. I'm here I'm everything that I say I am and I will do everything that I say I'll do. And yet somehow we turn away at times, don't we? Because we can't escape that judgment is a feature, not just of the Old Testament, which is what some people like to think, right? Judgment and those kind of harsh words, the difficult things about the narratives of the Bible, right? That's an Old Testament thing. Jesus, he's all about love, right? He's all about grace and goodness and mercy and peace. There's no way that judgment is a feature of his ministry, but yet judgment very definitely is. Because just as that patience and love, that loving kindness is a feature of who God is in Exodus 34, uh, verse 6, verse 7 talks to you about his judgment. Why? Because justice is right at the heart of who we are as human beings, of who God is as our Lord. 
Like when Joe and I watched When They See Us, which is uh, the Netflix show, which is based on the story of the Central Park Five. It was the sheer injustice that moved and enraged me so very much. Like it's hardwired into us. Recently, our daughter has caught on to these ideas about justice, right? Things that are right and wrong. And so uh, she's, got to, she's got to be a little bit of a vigilante about this, right? So she's like walking around the house, calling out the things that you said you'd do and you didn't do. So if you don't take her out to the park, you've promised to take her but you don't take her because it starts lashing down with rain she will blurt out you're a liar you said or if Levi her tiny six-month-old brother pulls her hair she will swiftly turn around and hit him right back right because there's some concept of justice in here taught or not it's there and so too with God justice is right at the heart of who he is Only God can hold together perfect love, perfect peace, perfect patience with perfect justice at the end. And just as it is this son, just as it's Jesus, who is the embodiment of that patience, peace, love, kindness, mercy, grace, so too it will be him who carries out the justice. Scott McKnight writes this in Kingdom Conspiracy. Judgment is prominent in the teachings of Jesus, beginning with a notable feature Jesus will be the judge. There is judgment and Jesus will do it. That's one of the truths of the gospel. Justice is important to our God and we should be thankful that it is. But yeah, we get uncomfortable with it, don't we? Maybe it's, if you've been around Belfast for as long as I have, it's the hangover of a lifetime of Belfast city center preachers or whatever. We get uptight about the theme. But yet Jesus... The one who embodies patience, who is love. The one who embodies all of how Exodus describes God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The one who Israel rejected is the one God will lift up. And we who are in him will be lifted up with him. Judgment is real as real as God's love. But both are pointed at us today because our rejection of him is every bit as real too, isn't it? Don't hold back on taking hold of his love today and his purposes for your life. This parable is a picture of patience again and again and again. We reject God's love and his way in our lives and still he holds out his love and his purposes for us. This is a picture of us. We overreach and we overstep. We look at the things in our lives and the stuff that God is calling out of us and we say, God, it's either you or it's me. And we find ourselves choosing me a lot of the time, don't we? We want to take our lives in the world for ourselves, but the kingdom is his. We only inherit it. So now we seek it. And this is a picture of rejection. Israel's rejection of Jesus, our rejection of Jesus, where one day judgment will come if we refuse to return to him what is truly his. You know, just as we finish today, living the Christian life, right, could often be better described as a tragedy more than a comedy, couldn't it? I mean, 2020 has definitely helped taking care of that. Being a Christian 
living out the way of Jesus has probably been harder than ever in this last year. I don't know about you, but as I speak to people all the time, they're just exhausted, just exhausted. Where our pain has been greater, where our isolation has been costly, where our confusion that asks questions like, where are you, Lord, and what are you doing, has been greater than ever. But I think today's parable is speaking to some things in us today as a church. The first thing I think it's speaking to is patience. I think there are some of you today that need to know that he is patient with you. He's patient with you. This is not a license to just do whatever you want and rely on it and say, oh, it's fine, he's patient with me, he'll keep coming back. That's not how it works. But to know that whatever it is that you've done, he is patient and kind again and again and again and again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. You need to know today that he is patient with you. And secondly, I think there are some people here today, and this is a moment where you readdress the loyalties of your life. Where this new year, however you sit today in lockdown, however that's changed your life circumstances, you take a look at your life today and you realize that there have been things where you've been looking at it and you've been saying, it's either me or it's you, Lord, and I choose me. Whether that's finances, whether that's family, whether that's relationships, whether that's decisions about work or where you're going to live or what you're going to do, whether it's about habits, that you have looked at your life and you're making decisions that say, it's me or you, Lord, and I, I choose me. I want to inherit it all. I want it to be about me. Maybe today is a moment that you reassess the loyalties of your life, that you look at him, this son, Jesus, and you realize today that it's all about him. It's not about the things that he brings or the stuff that comes with him. It's about him and how I see him and how I receive him and how I accept him today. This is about the loyalty of our hearts walked out in the practices of our lives.